Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. We're going to have a new episode in your feed on Wednesday. But before then, I wanted to share this episode with you from our archives. I couldn't stop thinking about it in the light of the insurrection at the Capitol. It's a conversation I had with Kathleen Ballou, a historian at the University of Chicago. Her book, Bring the War Home, the white power movement and paramilitary America is the definitive look at the modern history of the white power movement. I spoke to Kathleen in May of 2019, just after a shooting at a synagogue outside San Diego in which one person was killed and three were injured. She helped me then see how that shooting was not just an isolated action by a white supremacist, but part of a broader social movement. And she predicted that there would be more attacks. Unfortunately, Kathleen was right. I've been thinking about our conversation because it helped me put what happened at the Capitol into historical context. It's no surprise that Kathleen has been widely interviewed and quoted in the last week. I hope listening to her now helps you contextualize the same way it has done for me. Kathleen, Welcome to Deep Background. Before we dive into the history and prehistory of white power and white supremacy, can I ask you just a personal question? How did you get interested in this topic? It is not the most obvious topic for a historian to work on. It isn't. And in fact, um, when I began the dissertation, um, I was told by more than one person that it technically could not count as history because the usual rule of thumb when you're starting a dissertation is that you should be studying things 25 years ago or further is the rule. Um, It turns out that it took me so long to finish the book that I had cleared that mark by the time it was all said and done. But um, I actually think that the study of the recent past um, has become, as you can see with this project, urgently important to understanding our our political 
political moment um, and the debates and challenges that we now find ourselves embroiled in. I wanted to start by asking about the category of white power or white supremacy. Certainly in a country like the United States, which had slavery from the very beginning of the country, and of course there was slavery long before there was a United States uh, in North America, the idea that white people are superior to, to black people, to people of African descent, is you know almost baked in to the earliest history of the country and the prehistory of, of the country. And I wonder, how do you know where to start? You know, when you talk about white power or white supremacy, you know, how do you know that you don't have to start all the way back in the 1600s when the first African slaves were brought to, to the Americas or in 1787 with the U.S. Constitution, which enshrined slavery in certain respects? What's the what's your working starting place when you start thinking about white power? So when I teach this to my undergraduates, we do start with those long histories of racial inequality, the ways that um, white supremacy is not only a matter of ideological belief for some people in the United States, but has become imbricated in our systems of government, our distribution of resources, our policing, and all kinds of other ways. It's everywhere. Race um, is everywhere in this country. Race is everywhere. I think reasonable people can agree on that. Um, I think that the definitions part is critically important, especially now. So what white power refers to is a movement that comes out of the Vietnam War, brings together a bunch of ideologically diverse activists who had not been working together before, such as Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, radical tax resistors, white separatists, and others, um, and kind of amalgamates them into one social movement using the narrative of the war to bind them together and then declares war on the federal government. Um, so that begins in 1983. Um, before that, I would characterize um, things like the many iterations of the KKK, um, the neo-Nazi party in the United States. Those things are more like vigilante violence in that the violence is either supporting the state or supporting local status quo power. Post-1983, we're dealing with a completely different thing. Um, after that, it is a revolutionary movement that is attempting to overthrow the United States, either through um, a kind of long asymmetrical war of sabotage or through a direct revolution. Um, so that's the white power movement. Um, the, the tricky one for a lot of people is white nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, I think it's easier to understand right now because all of these stories in the news um, about Hindu nationalism make this distinction really, really clear. Um, so Hindu nationalism, for listeners who might not be familiar, is a movement in India in which people who uh, are Hindu nationalists, and they call themselves that, are organizing to um, make India more oriented around Hinduism in culture and in policy, right? So they're trying to inject the nation of India with Hinduism um, more than it already is. Um, it's complicated in India by the fact that yes, the name yes. for India in the language of Hindi is Hindustan. So, you know, yes. the, the word itself, Hindu, doesn't only mean the religion. It also means a right. culture. It also means a civilization. It's a tricky one. Indeed. But the category is India. In white nationalism, the category is not the United States. The nation imagined by white nationalism after 1983 is fundamentally opposed to the United States and also to New Zealand and Australia and other nations where this takes hold. White nationalism is attempting to create a transnational group of white people that will 
take over white homelands and eventually many of them hope to wage war such that they can achieve an all-white world. That's not the same thing as, um, say, the Klan in the 1920s, where people were marching on the National Mall with their robes and hoods but their faces uncovered. Um, which was, an, which was among just, other things, anti-immigrant. It was both about oh, suppressing African-Americans but also the Klan in, the 19, in its 1920s iteration was very focused on immigrants, especially from Catholic countries. The white power movement also is anti-immigrant. But the thing that's different is that um, after 1983, this is an anti-government, anti-nation movement. It's not an overexertion of patriotism. It's not just too much nationalism. You talked about opposition to the United States uh, as opposed to vigilante violence. But in its first iteration, when the Ku Klux Klan came into existence after the Civil War, in part to resist the attempts at the creation of racial equality that were being imposed in the South by military reconstruction, that is by an occupation of Union troops. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it also in its origins, the Klan at that point, in a sense, revolutionary? It was opposed to the government of the United States, and it was supporting the, the already defeated uh, ideals of the, of the Confederacy. So in some sense, wasn't there a revolutionary impulse implicit in the Klan from the beginning? I think yes, but I think this one is highly debatable, and I think it depends on what historians would call periodization, meaning when you choose to stop that story. Mm -hmm. So the first clan was founded in 1866 in Pulaski, Tennessee, by uh, frustrated veterans of the Confederacy. Um, it very quickly grew, but at the beginning was mostly understood as sort of like a burlesque prankster group. Um, and then there is this moment when it formalizes and turns violent. And that violence is directed at African-Americans, school tax collectors, um, school teachers, and people from the North who come in to implement Reconstruction, and people in the South who support Reconstruction. In other words, it is an attempt either to resist the federal government's efforts to reconstruct the South or to form a new system of power. Mm -hmm. So right in there is the distinction between revolutionary and something else. Um, historians have sort of argued a lot over this, but um, I think it's important to remember that the Jim Crow regime in the South is not sort of just a continuation of slavery, but something that has to be built and constructed and invented after Reconstruction. Um, the Klan doesn't disappear when um, Reconstruction ends. Instead, it l largely just relocates into citizen militias, into groups like the Red Shirts and the White Shirts, um, into rifle clubs, and into spectacle lynchings, which are these mass public participation events that carry out a lot of the same kind of violence the Klan was already doing. But, uh, but a, um, a lot of it in public. I mean, one of the things that always amazes me about lynching is that there are postcards that were spread through the South of people, white people, gathered around a lynched African-American with a photograph being taken as a kind of commemoration of the event. And no one's no one's wearing a mask. No one's hiding his face. Not only that, but there are women and children in their Sunday best clothes. These events are all, all very often happening on the courthouse or at local sites of power. Um, and it's also not just in the South. These are happening um, in Indiana, in the Pacific Northwest, in Texas. Um, and in fact, for one stretch in, in South Texas, uh, the chance of being lynched is much higher for Mexican-Americans and Mexicans than it is for African-American men in the South. Um, it's 
it's that move into lynching that makes me reluctant to think of it as revolutionary violence because lynching has mostly been understood as scholars as conveying a kind of popular sovereignty of the community. Um, in other words, that, in other words, that when when you lynch somebody, the whole community is getting together to do it. It's a kind of perverted version of small d democracy where we're doing this or, as a collective. Yes, it's a claim to that power. It's a taking back of sovereign power from the state. Mm-hmm. Let's turn now to that revolutionary movement, which, as you described, um, in 1983, unites itself to some degree and declares war on the United States of America. Tell us that story, because I don't think that's very well known. The 1983 turn comes after this big infrastructure buildup and organization of a social movement that happens um, in the years proceeding. The Klan builds paramilitary training camps all around the country. It trains people in paramilitary warfare. Um, It works on amassing weapons and materiel, getting money, getting people organized, getting people in contact with one another. Um, And by 1983, I think there are two major things that happen. One is that that infrastructure is in place. Activists know each other. They're all in the same room. They're kind of cohered around this common story of the Vietnam War, which has allowed some connections possible between different groups that weren't possible before. And the other thing that happens is they get really frustrated with Reagan. Um, Activists in the movement don't make this revolutionary turn in a moment of leftist state power, but instead under the second term of the Reagan administration. And their argument about this is that the distance between Reagan's campaign promises and what they see as his moderation proves to them once and for all that electoral change will never deliver the kind of world they want, and therefore they need to declare war. Now, this is really... This is really relevant to us in the present moment because it means that even at moments when the center through the left might see kind of a moment of conservative orientation and executive power, that doesn't mean that activists on the fringe right will be assuaged by that. And in fact, that's had just the opposite effect in this case. So that's extremely important, as you say, for the question of the relationship between recent rounds of white power violence and the Trump administration. There's a a tendency on the left to say, well, look at Charlottesville, which followed Donald Trump's uh, ascending to the presidency, and then look at subsequent events, the Tree of Life shooting, uh, for example, in the United States, the Christchurch, New Zealand attacks, and to see this all as very much a result of the election of Donald Trump. And if I understand you correctly, you're telling a slightly different story about the way that white power activists reacted, for example, to the election of Ronald Reagan. It's not that they were empowered or emboldened by the election of a conservative president. It's rather that they felt that it wasn't enough and that therefore they needed to take some some revolutionary action. Is that in your mind? I mean, we're jumping ahead to the president, which we'll, we'll come to you know in, in good time as well. But is it your view that something like that is happening now among white power activists, it's not that they're emboldened so much by Trump's election. It's that it's not enough and it gives them reason to do more. I suspect that's what we're seeing. Um, This is when I have to give the historian caveat that the thing that lets me see the story that I write about in the book is this archive Mm -hmm. that spans newspapers, primary source materials, FBI and other surveillance documents, court testimony. We don't get that kind of source base um, in real time. When you talk about, as a historian, talk about the archive, you mean some some literal archives in some cases, caches of documents, but it's also the word archive is also a metaphor that historians use to describe all the materials 
that you guys use to try to make sense of historical events. Exactly. You could think about it as like the receipts for the story I'm going to tell. Mm-hmm. I don't have that kind of information about events from about 1996 forward. And there are some reasons for why that is in this particular um, cache of sources. But the earlier period does tell us a couple of things that make me concerned about the present moment in the ways that you've just described. One of them is that um, when there is this moment of perceived sympathetic administration, um, that has not assuaged these activists. And in fact, that has been seen as a call to arms. The other one is that there have always been sort of two spheres of activity in this movement. One of them is the sort of mass mobilizations like Charlottesville, marches, political campaigns, um, organizing events, recruitment drives, um, campus campaigns uh, to recruit students, uh, public speaking tours, things like that. Um, The other one is this massive network of paramilitary camps, cell-style terror, um, illegal communication in many cases, and different kinds of crime ranging from assassination to the obtaining of stolen military weapons and materiel to mass violence attacks. In the period that I study, those two spheres of activity happened at the same time. Um, And often there were people who crossed the line between those two kinds of activism and were undertaking both of those things as a coordinated kind kind of campaign. The fact that we can't see that underground in real time doesn't mean that that's not happening as as we are noticing mm-hmm. more of these above-board events. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this wave of uh, violent attacks that you describe, which I might also add um, Dylan Roof's shooting in Charleston. Absolutely. Um, I was just giving uh, you a, Bible study a representative example. Lots yeah, more. Oh, no, yeah. Well, the, and the, I presume you'd also you include Anders Breivik in Norway. Yes. Putting those all together in one story is very, very important because then we can start to say, oh, wow, this is a wave. We're talking about, you know, three attempted attacks in the last six months. Um, A lot of these are mass attacks. A lot of these are people who are using the same coordinated messaging. Um, That indicates to me that we do have this two spheres model of of activism going again, even if I can't see the sources um, in real time to be able to describe it in detail. One element that I think we need to also add to your depiction of um, people's common narrative of the Vietnam War having been lost because of betrayal by the American government and anti-communism and the bringing together of Klan members and neo-Nazis and others is the religious component. Would you say something about the apocalyptic religious elements of the combined viewpoints that are coming together around 1983 in this revolutionary movement? Sure. There are kind of two major theological innovations of this movement. One of them is Norse paganism, so Odinism and other uh, kind of neo-pagan ideologies that put forward the greatness of white cultures in different ways. So the idea here is to take uh, Nordic mythology, of yes. which Odin is a central figure, and to to say, ah, Nordic mythology equals white people's mythology, something like that? Exactly. So there's, and it comes with a whole cultural apparatus of things like writing in runes and using the Viking imagery and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one is Christian identity. And I think this one is more impactful uh, for a couple of different reasons. One is that it has a very clear role for women who turn out to be enormously important to motivating this movement and holding it together. 
Um, the other is for its depiction of the end of the world. So the 1980s in general are a time of deep fixation on the end of the world. There's deep, deep apocalyptic belief um, kind of across American culture, um, including in evangelical churches, which are recruiting much larger congregations and much more politicized congregations in the 1980s. Now, in evangelical Christianity, that comes with a belief in a day called the rapture, which is a moment when all of the faithful are supposed to be peacefully transported to heaven before this big, bloody last battle that will come right before the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. So Christian identity has no rapture, but it does have the battle. So what Christian identity does is turn its believers into either survivalists. You either have to survive this end times before Jesus returns, mm -hmm. or you have to become a soldier of God to clear the world of non-white populations before, you know, before Christ can return to the world. So what it does is transfigure this whole host of social issues that are important to the white power movement into a holy war. And one way to think about this is that it comes with this intense sense of emergency about something that people talk about very casual, casually um, in American culture, which is this kind of imagined moment of demographic change when mm -hmm. the country will switch over from a majority white population to something else. Um, and as different communities begin to make that transition in the 80s and the 90s, these activists get more and more preoccupied with this. Um, for people in the white power movement, um, the issues that might be conservative um, or understandable to us as conservative, like opposing immigration, opposing abortion, LGBT rights, um, opposing feminism, um, being in favor of racial segregation or freedom of association— all of that stuff for white power activists is attached to this deep preoccupation with the future of the race mm -hmm. through the production of white babies. So it's not for white power activists just they oppose abortion because it's a conservative issue or because they have concerns about unborn life. It's that they oppose abortion because abortion is one thing that is threatening the white birth rate along with immigration integration, which they think will result in the birth of non-white children or mixed-race children who they see as non-human. Um, uh, LGBT rights, they think, will take uh, white women um, out of the work of birthing children. They're worried about feminism because they think women should be at home raising children. This whole production of white children thing is like the glue that holds together this whole belief system. And in order for it to make sense, you really have to think about how vivid and immediate this sense of emergency is mm -hmm. to these activists. They feel this as an apocalyptic threat, so, not as kind of like a soft demographic change that's going to come at some point. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Okay, so you get this attempt to unify these disparate, uh, potentially disparate social groups around a common vision and a kind of a common ideology. It's happening in the middle of the 1980s, and it then leads to some rather extraordinary consequences. Most saliently in your book, and this is the kind of climactic point in your book, the 1995 
bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building by Timothy McVeigh and a group of, of others, and we'll say more about that group. How did that spectacular bombing, spectacular in the sense that it was a spectacle, it created a spectacle um, in which nearly 170 people were killed, grow out of this movement? How did the movement go from, as it were, a group of possibly crazy-looking peripheral people to a cohesive movement that could produce an attack like this? That's a great question. And the short answer is through women. During the 1980s, what unfolds is not sort of a um, popularly understood collection of shrieking and ignorant activists in backwoods something, you know, doing their own thing and fighting with each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we see is actually a broad-ranging social movement. It includes men, women, and children. It includes people in all regions of the country, um, including rural, suburban, and urban spaces. It includes people of a lot of different age groups, people with education ranging from high school dropout and, and to homeschool to, I mean, um, rocket launch engineer kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um religious leaders and felons and civilians, veterans, and active duty troops. So it's really a... Uh, it's a disparate I, group of people. It is a disparate group. The, the you word can't I just say, say oh, is everyone diverse. is poor, everybody. Yeah, well... <laughs> no, you, no, yeah. not at all. It's a very diverse group of people mm-hmm. except racially. Yes. Um, and it, it even has multiple faiths in it, as we talked about. So that, um, that structure... Um, together with this turn against the state, leads them to adopt a strategy called leaderless resistance in 1983. So uh, talk to us about leaderless resistance, because that's hugely important for the present moment as well. It is. Leaderless resistance is is easy to understand now as just cell-style terrorism. The idea is that you're going to um, indoctrinate and shape uh, activists and Maybe small cohorts of cells, like uh, one to six people, maybe the occasional larger cell of 12 people, maybe just one to two activists. You're going to get them all aligned towards the same targets, and then they're going to act independently without communication with leadership and without communication with each other. Now, there's actually a historical reason for why they adopt this strategy, yes. which is that in the earlier clan, um, in the, the 50s and the 60s, the third era clan, which is the one that opposes the civil rights movement, um, the federal government had sent in a ton of informants um, under the FBI's counterintelligence project and other initiatives. Um, and Klansmen got really, really frustrated with how many of these people were getting into their meetings and messing up their stuff and getting people arrested and turning over mailing lists and all kinds of things like that. So leaderless resistance is actually implemented in large part to foil surveillance, um, and it has the other kind of immediate uh, benefit of foiling court prosecution. But the lasting impact of it has actually been to foil public understanding, because what happens is leaderless resistance plays right into this sort of media narrative about lone wolf violence or crazy people or a few bad apples or mad gunmen, right, where we get a lot of different stories about one person committing an act of violence and don't get the apparatus to put those things together into the same history. So leaderless resistance is one of the ways that we get from the formation of the movement to Oklahoma City. The other one is the implementation of computer social networking. 
1983-84, they implement um, a series of code word accessed message boards called LibertyNet. Mm-hmm. Um, this is before the internet, so technically this is not the internet, but we can we can understand this as like the proto-internet. It's it's networked computers that can speak to one another. Um, and also, by the way, it takes the FBI like two years to crack the code and see what they're posting. Kind of amazing that uh, white power might be might be the very first social movement to have actively exploited uh, computer technology in that way. Yeah. Not only that, but the way that they do this is very much like Facebook long before Facebook was invented. Um, What they post to these message boards includes a lot of, um, you know, practical content like assassination lists and, um, you know, propaganda messaging and things like that. But it also includes things like personal ads. So what these these boards are meant to do is to connect activists together in a movement in order to motivate this cell-style activism. Um, So it's in a way, if if you're going to have leaderless resistance, you need cells and they need to communicate with each other somehow, even if not in coordination. And then the message boards become the mechanism in your story for how that happens. Yeah. Well, you also need a big, uh, you need the social movement to share resources and also to connect everybody in common culture such that they can understand what the targets are supposed to be. It's interesting that Timothy McVeigh, I think you show in your book, also engage in one of these uh, models of get some resources by robbing somebody, right? He and a couple of his associates uh, robbed a gun mm-hmm. dealer to to get the money to have the resources to buy the to buy the material to to blow up the federal building. Yes, um, and that's a strategy from the order, and also from a novel called The Turner Diaries, which kind of becomes um, a. I mean, it's it's important as a cultural text, but it's and, and and as a manual of operations. But it's also kind of a a cultural lodestar for the movement in the sense that it does that work of explaining to everybody what they're trying to do and how they're going to do it. I was fascinated Um, reading your book about the centrality of of this novel, The Turner Diaries, which seemed to include, in your account, actually a blueprint even for blowing up a federal building with a truck bomb. I mean, very, very detailed sort of uh, sort of envisioning process. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that about that novel, because, again, it was a novel that I had not heard of before reading your book. Ah, okay. Um, So it's a novel that's published in serial in the late 1970s and then comes out in paperback. Um, And it is very difficult to um, overstate how important this novel is to the movement. Um, The Turner Diaries shows up everywhere. So McVeigh sells it for a while on the gun show circuit. Um, The order that I talked about a moment ago keeps a stack of them in the bunkhouse. Other white power groups distribute them at paramilitary training. Um, It shows up in bookstores and other places where the movement is trying to recruit um, far away as South Africa. Um, And it's it's mentioned in advertisements and all kinds of different white power publications. Um, And I think one of the reasons it's so important is it sets out Uh, to answer a question that is sort of baffling on its face and that actually has stood in the way of prosecution more than once, which is how could this fringe movement, right, it's a very small movement, possibly hope to do what it's setting out to do, which is to overthrow the United States, the most militarized super state in world history? Um, This is a kind of baffling problem. For these activists. And in the in the novel, I think he describes it as a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant. 
Um, so the imaginative work that the Turner Diaries does in laying out how such a thing could be possible is really important for this movement in terms of being able to um, have an imaginary in which this could, could happen. And it tells us something very, very important and alarming about the kind of violence we're seeing today, which is that acts like Christchurch or the Pittsburgh shooting or the Oklahoma City bombing are not imagined to be the end point of this activism. The, the, the end point is not the act of violence. These are supposed to be political acts of violence that white power activists hope will awaken other white people to what they see as the self-evident state of emergency facing the white race. And they think that that will eventually lead to a armed uprising that will create an all-white world. And the Turner Diaries imagines this very violently and very vividly. Um, and it includes things like like many nuclear weapon blasts, um, the uh, the forced march of people of color out of the United States, and the, the eventual genocide of all populations except for white people in the world. And so then Oklahoma City does happen, and the bombing does occur. And then from the standpoint of public perception— Instead of the world sitting up and taking notice and ordinary concerned Americans saying there's this powerful, dangerous social movement that's seeking revolution and is using terrorist techniques and has just blown up a building and killed a lot of people, we get basically the opposite. We get a narrative of this was a few people um, I remember a narrative that, you know, Timothy McVeigh was so radical that even the, the militias wouldn't have him as a member, thereby implying that maybe these militias actually aren't so bad. After mm -hmm. all, McVeigh doesn't put up much of a defense at trial, and then he allows himself to be executed by not uh, challenging the, the death sentence. And he's he's mm -hmm. executed in record time. And it's as though the story disappears. Yeah. Why, why did this happen? I mean, to take a comparison, after September 11th, Whatever skepticism there might have been about the capacities of terrorists operating in the name of Islam to change global affairs was eliminated. And a, a generation of experts or pseudo-experts in some cases, but nevertheless, a generation of concerned people who cared about this was born in a moment and created an industry that hasn't gone away since. In contrast, in radical contrast, in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing, things sort of don't happen in that way. Talk about why, because I think it's so important. The Oklahoma City bombing represents the largest deliberate mass casualty in the United States between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Um, and the fact that we don't have a narrative about it in the ways that you've outlined is both alarming and surprising, given how thoroughly these these events that I cover in the book were talked about at the time. So if you think about something like the shooting at Greensboro, um, people knew about that. That was front page news. This that is made the 1979 the front pages, shooting. Yep. Yeah, that made the front pages of many, many, many newspapers um, and eventually also became a Saturday Night Live sketch. Like that was in the zeitgeist. But somehow we haven't connected that event with Oklahoma City. We haven't connected either of them with a narrative about a social movement. We don't have really a durable way at all of thinking about how to narrate these events. So with Oklahoma City, one of the things that happens is that the federal government tries to do a big prosecution of these activists in 1987-88 um, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so it's a federal trial on charges including seditious conspiracy. Um, seditious conspiracy in this case was 
wholly evident. The jury heard testimony about white power activists plotting to poison the water supply of a major city with cyanide. They seized 30 gallons of cyanide. Um, The jurors saw laundry hampers full of um, illegal weapons and materiel pushed through the courtroom and were talking about things like anti-tank weapons and claymore mines. They saw the writings of these activists where they had said that they were involved in seditious conspiracy. It goes on and on like this. Um, That trial got no convictions. So you get these acquittals uh, in these cases of trying people for trying to overthrow the government. I get that that's a part of... The, well, the disappearance the, of a of a story that there's a coherent movement yeah. here. But say more about how. But yeah, go ahead. More than that, what emerges from it is that it is a disaster for the prosecuting agencies. The the ATF, DOJ, FBI, um, everyone is embarrassed by this entire thing. Um, and afterward, there's a policy institutionalized at the FBI that says they will make no attempt to tie white power violence to a movement. They will prosecute only individual crimes. They will not attempt to prosecute as part of a movement. So you have a piece of paper written at the end of the sedition trial that when the Timothy McVeigh case comes up says they will not try to prosecute as part of a movement. And why do they say in this document that they won't do that? Because because it's a no-win proposition that they thought that was yeah. why they lost those prosecutions? It's a kind of tactical well, judgment? It's a tactical judgment and a recognition that there is not a sufficient public will to prosecute white power violence as the work of a movement. And I mean, if anything, that's only deepened by the events of the early 1990s. Ruby Ridge and Ruby and Ridge Waco. and Waco mm-hmm. and the sieges where where the state very clearly um, oversteps and and uses uh, militarized violence against uh, against white power activists in one case and. Um, uh, followers of the Branch Davidian um, compound at the other case. So the, um, so the FBI is a part of the story and the Department of Justice. Oh, yes. they, they decline to treat white, white power or white supremacy movements as a coordinated and coherent set of, of terrorist groups, even after Oklahoma City. Why does the rest of the world go along with that? Why does the media accept that um, instead of pushing against the the government's failure to, to construct a narrative? I think that there is a very durable narrative form about the lone wolf gunman. Mm-hmm. And when there is a mass violent event um, that is carried out by a white perpetrator, we almost always see the same story about it. It almost always goes to lone wolf mental health and sort of like a psychological profile rather than going to uh, connections and ideology and politics, um, even when there is clear, clear evidence that these are white power gunmen. So it's a kind of um, denial, and it may be an individual psychological denial, or it may be a white people wide social denial. I mean, my my assumption is that you know that many African Americans would not instinctively think, oh, it must be a lone wolf, but might think there are organized people who are who are out to get us. Well, not only that, but the term lone wolf comes from this movement. So we are allowing this movement to disappear every time we say that Mm -hmm. phrase. One question that I hear a lot about this story is who failed to stop this movement? Because in the entirety of my book, there's never a moment when there's like a decisive court case that renders the movement unable to organize even for a short time. Yeah, you don't have an Elliot Ness in your book. You don't have a, you know, it would be hard to make a movie out of it because you don't have the heroic cop or, you know, FBI agent who stands up and says, enough, I'm going to I'm going to change this around. 
There's one actually who quits in frustration after the sedition trial policy is instituted right. about not tying the individual crimes to the broad movement. And there are some heroic local reporters who have like one piece of this story in real time, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who are trying, right? But the failure is um, exists at a, I have to use one historical jargon term, mm-hmm. um, which is transcalar, meaning that the failure of response to this movement lives both at the level of, like, personal prejudice of people in various positions of power that allow it to go unchecked, right, Mm -hmm. all the way up through failures of media reporting, failures of juror education, failures of prosecutorial policy and the law, um, failures of military policy to stop this kind of organizing and active duty troops, um, failures in in all kinds of different um, allocation of surveillance resources— all the way up, right? So transcalar meaning it goes at every from the level, level of at every people level, yep. all the way up to every level of systemic power you can think of. And it's all so um, imbricated that I think to really change it would require a massive shift in public discourse such that people start to think about it as a movement all the way up to reforming those policies and laws that allow these things to continue. Well, one change that might potentially uh, be coming is ironically driven by a rapidly growing number of wildly successful and heavily publicized terrorist attacks. Yeah. Which is what we've seen in the last few years. You know, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but I would say since Charlottesville, American public consciousness, U.S. public consciousness has really been profoundly raised around these issues such that even events that take place abroad, like the Christchurch New Zealand attacks, are incorporated into our understanding or our wake-up call, which I think was not so much true for the Anders Breivik attacks, which, um, although there was interest in the United States and there there was a movie and there was a long New Yorker article, there was still some tendency to see this as though it were a a Northern European problem, you know, something something not a, a problem of the U.S. On top of that, there was the fact that Breivik you know, was a white guy who killed a lot of white people. I mean, the, and so it was. It seemed possible not to, to construct this narrative. But the recent events don't look that way. They look like a coordinated set of events around the world. And what's more, we also now have a powerful comparison to make, which is the comparison to self-radicalized terrorists who are acting in the name of Islam, right. who also have practiced a kind of leaderless resistance. But that's not how a lot of the most effective attacks of the Islamic State operate. They operate on a leaderless resistance principle. So we now have a salient example in our minds and lots and lots of attacks. Do you have a sense that these attacks are actually speeding up or is that an artifact of our starting to notice them more? It feels to me like a wave of attacks that we're in Mm -hmm. Um, and something that I have been trying to talk about since Charlottesville is that the body count is very, very low still, um, given the kind of public-facing activism that we can observe. Um, so the body count is low relative to what it could be. Well, I, so if we compare the earlier moment with this moment mm-hmm. um, and compare something like similar amounts of public sphere activity um, with where we are right now, the comparative body count is very low, um, meaning that I would expect there to be more death. But does that mean, just to clarify, does that mean you expect more death is coming or that you're surprised yeah. that it hasn't come yet? No, 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 no. I, I, I would expect more mass attacks yes, would be coming. Yes, 
Um, and it's a scary and, thought. We should we should pause on that for 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 a moment. You're saying, in light of the historical examples and evidence, you would predict that there are more very violent public attacks coming. Yeah. Um, that would be my hunch. I mean, historians always are reluctant to make prognoses about the future. And Understandably. I, um, like I said, I don't have an archive, but my hunch is that given how much public-facing activity we've seen in the last, say, five years, mm-hmm. um, I am staggered that the body count is not already higher. Mm-hmm. So I would be very surprised if it did not amplify Um, And that's also true because we have this other X factor about, um, so if you look at uh, rises in the Klan throughout its life, so from 1866 to the present, we have these clearly defined ebbs and flows of the Klan. Um, The the high points always align with the aftermath of warfare in American society. And they do that more consistently than they align with things like economic hardship or poverty um, or even anti-immigration sentiment or Um, segregation law changes. Um, And the fact that we are now in a prolonged aftermath of war period Mm -hmm. that is stretched out. Coming out of Iraq and eventually out of Afghanistan. I mean, we're in in kind of like a forever aftermath right now. Well, there Um, were forever wars, so it's not so surprising that we're going to have a forever aftermath. Exactly. And I mean, this is a, this is a kind of aftermath that we have never seen before. If you think about kind of the cycles of combat and aftermath um, in that it is mostly focused on one sector of society that interacts less and less with other sectors of society. Right. We see increasing segregation of military families into communities mm-hmm. apart from other families. Um, we see increasing use of things like stop loss and multiple tours to put people um, back in combat over and over rather than drafting new people. I teach at a university which is a, has wonderful students, but um, I, I hardly ever have students who have themselves um, served or have even have family members who've served. Mm-hmm. So there's a profound social segregation around who is doing this work of violence and a stretching out of the combat aftermath period. Um, I don't know what that will do. In those earlier periods, it's really interesting because um, at one point I wondered if we might be seeing like a Rambo effect, right, where veterans come back and just can't stop doing the violence of warfare. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that violence increases for everybody in American society after warfare. Um, People who definitely didn't serve, like older people and women and children. Um, Across all of those groups, there's just more violence in the aftermath of warfare in American society. So in this long aftermath period, I think we should be concerned about um, this effect where vigilante or excuse me, revolutionary groups in this case are able to either mobilize that violent sentiment or, I don't know, contribute to it and fan it in some way. I want to close by asking you about a phenomenon that is obviously very significant for the post-1995 era of of white supremacy, the era that we're in now, and that is the internet, not in its proto-message board form, but in the contemporary form that that we know, which includes not only Internet 1.0, but also social media and in which, among other things, it's much easier to spread information to people who never have to have individual human contact with each other. They might, but they, but they don't need to have done. It strikes me that on the one hand, the phenomenon of self-radicalization, the Dylan Roof, whom, as you say in, in the close of your book, never actually had to meet any people who shared his views to develop them. So in that sense, you could sort of imagine that the Internet is a, uh, and social media are, are vehicles to, to spread ideology and to spread violence. 
But on the other hand, we did have Charlottesville, which was, lest we forget, uh, began with a march that was called Unite the Right, which was trying precisely to translate internet connections to the real life sphere. Talk about, if, if you would, the internet and how it's going to affect or is affecting white power in our present moment. The actual violence of even public-facing events like Charlottesville um, that led to the death of Heather Heyer and the the beating of other demonstrators um, is important to queue up as we have that conversation. The internet is both concerning and immensely hopeful. The use of viral videos and live streaming of the attacks is new and strikes me as very much of a piece with our present moment. And I'm thinking of the Christchurch shooter live streaming the attack and also the militias on the border um, detaining undocumented immigrants and live streaming, you know, their agony as they were held by by a non-government group in, in order to to turn them over to the border patrol. On the other hand, I do want to say that like there is there is a way that the internet could also be an agent of change and could offer us a seed of hope. The idea that we talked about with connecting these stories together as a form of understanding the history such that we can talk about Christchurch and the Tree of Life shooting and Charlottesville and Dylan Roof's shooting in Charleston, all as the act of the white power movement— one potential there is to connect the, the impacted communities with one another and to create a kind of coalition politics that could resist this kind of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the Internet gives and takes away, I suppose. But but there is a way that it might also provide an instrument for public understanding that wasn't available to us in that earlier period. Kathleen, thank you very, very much, not just for talking with us, but for your extraordinarily important work to help us come to terms with by recognizing a genuine, organized, unified set of ideologies that are, in fact, a social movement with with real violent tendencies. Unless we recognize that, we're not going to be anywhere. And um, when we do recognize that, and I have some confidence that we we will, uh, it will be thanks to to your work and, and to the work of other other people like you. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Listening to my conversation with Kathleen, now in the aftermath of the Capitol attack, is an excellent reminder that white supremacists are not merely peripheral loners, but part of a large, significant, organized movement that shares coordinated plans, literature, and objectives. The novel The Turner Diaries that Kathleen and I discussed was invoked again by Kathleen in an article she wrote for The Washington Post in January of 2021. She points out there that the Turner Diaries also involves an attack on the U.S. Capitol, one that was not designed in the novel to destroy the Capitol altogether, but to show on the fence white Americans that nothing is out of bounds, that the Capitol is a soft target, and that ultimately even the Capitol can be attacked. Food for thought going forward. Until the next time I speak to you with a fresh new episode, be careful be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. 
You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.